In this episode, you will be hearing from insight professionals at top brands and consultancies on the top tips for asking good research questions to participants, as well as some of the common mistakes and how you can avoid them. Here's a teaser from Emma Craig, UX lead researcher at Shopify. So a really you know, simple example would be, how often do you picture yourself using this? You know, maybe in the interview, you've exposed that this is something they're interested in. They think it would be very helpful. It would, you know, ease all of these pains and challenges that they have. And then you want to say, okay, well, like, how often do you think you would use it? But people cannot give you a realistic idea about the future. They don't know. They will make it up. Like I said, if you ask somebody a question, they will answer that question. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm Jamin Brazil, the show's host. In this episode, we'll hear from insight professionals at top brands, including Shopify, as well as leading user experience and market research professionals. If you're involved in consumer insights from either a practitioner or buyer's perspective, this episode is for you. Similar to last time, I am joined by our executive producer, Chu Yi Yang. Chu Yi, how are you? I'm good. I just keep yawning and I don't know why. And I don't think I'm tired either. Yeah, I so. I do that sometimes. You know, I think it's because we're inside of a basement. We are. Right? With no windows. With no windows. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that definitely like is, even though it's like a nice sunny day here in California, it definitely feels a little like dark. and It feels like winter still. It does. It definitely feels like winter. Before we get started, we want to give a big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Lookback. This episode is brought to you by Lookback. Lookback is the leading software that enables researchers to interact with users in real time and in context. Built from the ground up by some of the original Spotify engineers, Lookback is the best in class video screen share platform for user experience and market research professionals. Check them out at lookback.io. A little last bit of housekeeping. It would be amazing if you guys stopped this episode right now to rate us on whatever app you guys are listening on. Great, let's get started. For this episode, we interviewed four research professionals who have thousands of research projects under their collective belts. Sorry, executives and heads of revenue. We gave the real researchers the spotlight for this particular episode. But before we get into the elements of a good question, let's talk about some of the biggest mistakes researchers make when composing a question. Mistake number one, leading questions. Leading questions came up a lot. Here's Josh Lamar, a well-known user experience researcher. I think that the biggest mistake is to either ask a leading question or to frame it too narrowly first. We've talked about framing narrowly first, so I guess we could talk about leading questions now, which are things like, tell me how amazing this product is. That's an over, you know, exaggeration, but it can be much more subtle too. Like if you're only asking about the positive aspects of something, or you're saying like, oh, this is this is a really great feature, isn't it? Well, what did you just do there? You told the user, you primed them, number one, to say, I like this feature. And then I created this tag question, like, isn't it? Don't you agree with me? You should agree with me because I'm the smart one here. Like, you just made the user feel dumb. And then you also told them exactly what you want to hear. So what are they going to do? They're going to tell you what you want to hear because they want to make you happy. And it's so important as, as a researcher to be very neutral 
and to ensure that you're not letting too much of your own feelings ever come out. Because as soon as you start letting on like, oh yeah, this is really dumb, isn't it? Yeah, I don't really use this, but we, we need to test this for our, our client. Can you, you know, just tell us that thing? Like it, it's just, you're throwing out the whole study, like data, if you do that, because it's too leading. You don't want to lead them on to the answer. The answer is what they think, not what you think. All of our guests talked about leading questions as one of the most common mistakes made when interviewing a participant. For kicks, let's listen to this two-minute excerpt from a TV program called Yes Minister. It's an English TV series that was originally aired in the 1980s, and it talks specifically and perfectly about leading questions. It is comical, but I hope you'll like press through, and it is in British English, so maybe a little bit difficult to understand. Hope you'll press through and enjoy the intent of this excerpt. He's going to say something new and radical in the broadcast. What, that silly grand design? Bernard, that was precisely what you had to avoid. How did this come about? I shall need a very good explanation. Well, he's very keen on it. What's that got to do with it? <laughs> Things don't happen just because prime ministers are very keen on them. Neville Chamberlain was very keen on peace. <laughs> He, he, thinks, he thinks it's a vote winner. Ah, that's more serious to done. What makes him think that? Well, the party who had an opinion poll done, it seems all the voters are in favour of bringing back national service. Well, I have another opinion poll done showing the voters are against bringing back national service. <laughs> we can't be for it. Oh, against. of course they can, Bernard. Have you ever been surveyed? Yes. Well, not me, actually. My house. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, Bernard, you know what happens. Nice young lady comes up to you. Obviously, you want to create a good impression. You don't want to look a fool, do you? <laughs> no. No. So she starts asking you some questions. Mr. Woolley, are you worried about the number of young people without jobs? Yes. Are you worried about the rise in crime among teenagers? Yes. Do you think there's a lack of discipline in our comprehensive schools? Yes. Do you think young people welcome some authority and leadership in their lives? Yes. Do you think they respond to a challenge? Yes. Would you be in favour of reintroducing national service? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, I suppose I might. Yes or no? Yes. Of course you would, Bernard. After all you've told you, you can't say no to that. <laughs> so, they don't mention the first five questions and they publish the last one. Is that really what they do? Well, not the reputable ones, no, but there aren't many of those. <laughs> so, alternatively, the young lady can get the opposite result. How? Mr. Woolley, are you worried about the danger of war? Yes. Are you worried about the growth of armaments? Yes. Do you think there's a danger in giving young people guns and teaching them how to kill? Yes. Do you think it's wrong to force people to take up arms against their will? Yes. Would you oppose the reintroduction of national service? Yes. <laughs> there you are, you see, Bernard. The perfect balanced sample. So, we just commissioned our own survey for the Ministry of Defence. See to it, Bernard. This excerpt is especially on point considering 2020 is an election year in the United States. As you are exposed to data from both sides, I hope that you will try and be thoughtful about processing it versus blindly adopting the implications. Mistake number two, double-barreled questions. Connected to leading questions are double-barreled questions. Zoe Doling, SVP at Focus Vision, talked about this. As described in Wikipedia, it is committed when someone asks a question that touches on more than one issue, yet only allows for a single answer. This may result in inaccuracies in the attitudes being measured for that particular question, as the respondent can only answer one of the two questions and can't indicate which one they're answering. 
double barrel questions. How can you really answer that? You're leading me into these, the basics. It's you're leading me into this response. I can't respond to the other way. We're all the time, it's like, I can't respond to that at all. Like, I, none of those apply. And we, we're constructing these questions to allow, and this actually is more on the quantitative side, because at least on the qualitative side, people are, you, you get to some sort of response, whether it's what you want or not, but people give their opinion because it's open-ended. Whereas in a closed-ended survey question, you know, you're, you're dictating the whole frame of it, the question you're asking and the responses they get. And it's like, no, that doesn't apply to me. Like, you're not getting to my opinion. And I think those are some of the, the things you see frequently and we're all guilty of it because you're, you the person that's designing the instrument, you're bound by your own parameters and how you're viewing it and how you're framing it. So you just heard mistakes from Jamin and now we're going to move on to tips. Tip number one is to keep it conversational. In addition to double-barreled questions, Zoe outlines the need for us to talk in conversational human terms. I, I think the the fundamentals remain the same whether you're you're asking a question in a survey or or constructing it for an interview. I mean, obviously, there's you know some fundamental differences. The first thing is, are you going to be understood? You know, talk in everyday language. I think too often we want to frame, we either bring in the world that we're in, be it the actual industry, you know, we've got particular language jargon that we're using, or you might think that I need to be so incredibly specific that you end up creating this very convoluted, you know, the way it's a constructed question. Is anybody going, you, you've just said it. We read in headlines. So do our participants. They scan. In fact, very often in a survey, they actually just go straight to the answers to determine what the question was and how they're going to respond. So it's been clear. It's been concise. And I think that kind of works for both sides, qualitative or quantitative, because with qualitative, you're going to you know, take the question and you can probe, you can go deeper and you're going to you know, take it all from there. But if you start with something that's very convoluted, then, well, you're probably not going to get to where, where you really wanted to go in the first place. That would be my overarching thought. We, we, we sometimes over-engineer our questions. Keeping things simple can be the best way to connect the intent of your question to the participants. Here is an example. If we want to know how much people like my new electronic coffee mug that keeps the liquid hot, we can ask, most coffee makers produce a cup of coffee that is 170 degrees. After you pour the coffee into a mug or other preferred drink containers of choice, how does the change in temperature of that coffee's life cycle impact your enjoyment level? Versus thinking about your last cup of coffee, what do you think about it cooling off? I've programmed so many surveys that use this very wordy question format over the latter short to the point question. Part of the issue here is that surveys and discussion guides are often written by a committee. And as my late grandfather used to say, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Okay, let's look at some more tips to frame a good question. Tip number two, use common terms. In full disclosure, I made a big mistake in my first interview with Emma Spotify. Here is the question that I asked her. What are the key elements of a good question? For me, it made perfect sense because I had been like framing out the discussion guide and thinking about what this, you know, the information that I was going to be getting from participants and like trying to come up with clever and smart follow-on questions. But the way that I framed this question was totally ambiguous. This created a lot of confusion at the beginning. She didn't know what we were talking about, was the elements specific to research objectives or a question in a survey or a question in a focus group or user experience study, you get the point. 
It is so easy to assume your participant is starting with the same framework as you are. Nomenclature, colloquialisms, phraseology, mindset, whatever. These are just some of the things that we need to think about when we're framing out our questions. Tip number three, know why you are asking each question. So the updated question we asked was, what are the key elements of a good participant question? I've only been in research for a year and I found this episode really useful, especially when listening to Harry Bruno's interview. For those that don't know, Harry is the UX specialist who first coined the term dark patterns. Dark patterns are tricks used in websites and apps that makes you do things that you didn't mean to do, like buying something or signing up. Harry mentioned that in order to ask the right questions, you have to ask yourself why you're having the study and what your goal is. After you answer that question, you can move on to creating a good question for participants. Tip number four, start broad, then go narrow. Another point that Harry made was about starting diagnostic questions broad and then narrowing things down. I think it's very easy to focus in on the small details of the researchers. And researchers can feel very safe when they focus in on small things like the recruitment specification of the exact wording, the questions. But in my opinion, what defines good research, and then, and then it sort of cascades into the questions, is the overarching research objectives. Um, so, you know, what are you doing the research for in the first place? And if you don't get that right, the questions are uh, inconsequential. <laughs> and if you do get it right, the questions become much easier to write anyway. So, so what do I mean by that? I mean, I, basically, it's, it's very common, particularly when you've got a new job or if you're a junior researcher, to have someone come along and, um, for example, a product manager or a product owner or someone in management to try and tell you the objectives in advance of what you should be doing your research on. Uh, and managers tend to be very feature focused. So they're probably going to be very specific and have a very narrow brief about the one thing that they care about, about at that point in time. For example, uh, imagine you're a researcher and you've got a new job and your team to joining has never done any user research. And your manager or the product owner or whatever comes along and says, I want you to do some research on this particular dashboard that we're building at the moment. And this dashboard is used by this one particular user type. Let's say we've got six user types and it's used by one of them. Um, so if you go and do that research, you'll probably make that person happy, but you'll still be kind of in the dark about the big picture. So, you know, what about the other five user types that we talked about there? What about the broader user needs? You know, what, what are the most worrying or least understood things about the problems that your product is trying to solve for users? Uh, and besides, often these sort of senior manager type people, they don't really know what good user research is anyway. So really, like I was saying earlier, it's really... A lot of the job of a researcher is to teach the people around them how they can be engaged with in a constructive way so they don't get approached with very tightly defined research questions that are over overly scoped, basically. So I've got a metaphor here. <laughs> if, you, if you think of your problem space as, as being like a dark cave, user research is a bit like a flashlight that shines a beam into the cave so you can see what's going on. And the first time, if you, if you did go climbing or go exploring and find a big dark cave, the first thing you're going to want to do is shine your torch, shine your flashlight around the cave to try and work out what's in there. You probably do it quite quickly, right? Just to make sure that you're safe and there's no big surprises like a bear or something. And then once you've done that, then you might have a more focused beam and shine it at something else, right? You might feel like, okay, we've covered that off. We've done our first pass. 
now we can focus in on that really exciting structure over there, the stalagmites and stalactites or something like that, where you would really point the beam there and get really interested and focused on it. So I guess a bit of a tenuous uh, metaphor there, but I think it's really, really important to always start broad. Otherwise, you can end up getting really deep into something and missing the point somehow. Because, uh, you know, human, human life is multi-layered and it's always good to start out on the broadest possible layer and then zoom in gradually rather than zoom in first and kind of miss out on some big thing that you should be working on. Pretty similar to Harry, Josh Lamar, the previous research manager for Outlook, says... You know, I think that the way that you frame a question is very, very important because you have to be at the right level. And what I mean by level is that if you start off an interview by saying, like, well, tell me how you check your email on the weekends. You've just scoped it so narrow and really you might be interested in something else. So it really it's really important to start very broad and then move into the specific. And a, an example of a broad question might be, tell me how you communicate with your friends and family. Much more broad than just email. And then as you start getting into it, you'll find more interesting things. The framing is so important because when you frame too narrowly, you put this box around the user and the user thinks, you know, I just, I think that they want to hear just this part. And so they only share the things that are in that box. But when you add a broader box from the beginning, then everything else is open and you might find something that's even more interesting just by asking a broader question. Harry's framework of a cave is exactly how we should think about our research. When writing your discussion guide or survey, start with your assumptions and then get rid of them. The less you know, the more you'll understand the context of the participants and their opinions about your research topic. In line with starting broad and narrowing in on your research question, I love the tactical example of how Emma Craig at Shopify breaks this down. So I think good interview questions or these, you know, direct questions that you're asking a participant or a respondent start with your your bigger question, your research question. <laughs> and I don't want it to get confusing here of, you know, what's what, but before you can start to formulate your discussion guide and understand exactly what it is you want to ask these people when you're face to face with them, you have to have your research question and your research objective in mind. So the research question here is essentially seeking to understand why something is happening or what is happening. You're looking to uncover like a process or a need or a challenge that someone's experiencing. So an example would be like, what are the biggest challenges people experience when it comes to taking public transit? And that would be your research question from which you derive all of your interview questions. And you had a really good point about, you know, not asking these pointed, direct questions that you just directly ask because half the time people won't actually know the answer or they won't have the answer. But I've learned over the years that if you ask somebody a question, they will answer your question. So whether they make it up or they exaggerate or whatever it might be, if you ask them something directly, they'll give you a direct answer and you can't always be certain that that is true or that they're not just telling you what they think you want to hear. So your interview question, it's there for you to collect evidence and you have to take different angles. You have to like go sideways or like you said, take the back door. If your research question is, 
around the biggest challenges people experience when it comes to taking public transit. Your interview question shouldn't be just asking somebody if they like to take the bus. Your interview question could be uh, asking them to walk you through how they got to work last week and kind of take these roundabout ways to understand the, the environment that it is you're researching. The context of the participant when consuming or experiencing the thing that you are measuring is 100% vital. In the way brakes don't matter without a car, we have to put our participant in the context of their consumption and then drill down. This is much harder than simply reducing your research to a net promoter score or similar Likert scale. While MPS is far easier to implement, it is less effective at uncovering hidden truths. Tip number five, protect your participants. It is also important to protect your research participants from your internal stakeholders. I remember once doing some research and we had the stakeholders in the room and one of the stakeholders would wrap his fingers on the table like this when the user didn't answer the question. Yeah, it was, it was like a, we were doing some research from eye tracking companies so we couldn't stream it because the tech, there was like a standalone piece of tech that was really, that you kind of had to be in the room to see working. So uh, that, that didn't, it's basically, sometimes you need to keep the stakeholders far away sometimes. And um, I often find that, I, I know some researchers like, like to have like um, a chat window open and like to let people ask them questions during the research. I absolutely will not abide that as the researcher. They can all get lost. If they can write notes and stuff and I'll talk to them afterwards. But having that extra channel of input while you're trying to run an interview is just like, sort of mind-meltingly annoying. Exactly. While Harry's example sounds like it came straight out of an episode of The Office, this is a real issue. If I was a participant, I'd want the interviewer to treat our conversation like a date where I have their full attention, not me sitting across the table from someone who is swiping on their phone after asking me a personal question. Tip number six is leverage past behavior to inform future usage. Now we're going to uncover the importance of leveraging past behavior to inform future outcomes. So a really you know, simple example would be, how often do you picture yourself using this? You know, maybe in the interview, you've exposed that this is something they're interested in. They think it would be very helpful. It would you know, ease all of these pains and challenges that they have. And then you want to say, okay, well, like, how often do you think you would use it? But people cannot give you a realistic idea about the future. They don't know. They will make it up. Like I said, if you ask somebody a question, they will answer that question. But it probably won't be true because they don't know well enough if they'll use something or if they'll do something in the future. I think an example I use a lot is like, if somebody asked me what I was going to eat for lunch tomorrow, I can't actually, I can give them a guess, but I can't actually tell them. But if they ask me what I've eaten for lunch every day this past week, I'll give them a much better indication of what I might eat for lunch tomorrow or what my lunches look like. So yeah, probably that. Asking people to predict instead of basing the question in past behavior. It is so easy as a researcher to simply ask a question around projections or expected usage of this new product or thing that the participant has never really seen or used before. And then take that input from the participant and extrapolate to inform your customers' models. That is very, very dangerous. Tip number seven, run a pilot before your real study. Before we end this episode, one of the tips that came up was from the old days of research. Prior to the internet where everything was fast and quote unquote easy, 
recruiting people for research was very, very hard and expensive. Why? Because we had to send out paper-based surveys or in-mall intercepts. And let me tell you, you think it's hard now, it was super sucky then. In order to avoid a project being foobarred, we would run a pilot project. This took a bit of time and was approximately 10% of the total budget. And it served to ensure that we were asking the right questions in the right way to the right respondents to answer our research objectives. This is something that I think we should look at doing for high-risk research to make sure that when we just take a 10% pull among our total population before we actually hard launch the rest of the project, our data is accurate and on point. In the next episode, we're releasing the long-form interview with Emma Craig, lead UX researcher at Shopify. The interviewer, I think it's easy to be unaware of the signals we send because they are so subtle, but just things like nodding your head or shaking your head or your facial expressions, every tiny, tiny movement, the other person, often unconsciously, is watching as a way of receiving feedback about how well they're performing. Happy Market Research is hosted and produced by me, Chu Yi Ying, and Jamin Brazil. Special thanks to our reference guests, Emma Craig, UX Research Manager at Shopify, Harry Bringnell, Head of UX Innovation at Smart Pension, Zoe Doling, SVP of Research at Focus Vision, Josh Lamar, a professional and well-known UX researcher. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes and check out Happy Market Research, or you can find us on our website at happymr.com. You can follow us on Twitter at happymrxp. Thank you for listening. We hope you will tune in next week.